0: Well, today's passage is Philippians chapter 1, so go ahead and turn there if you wouldn't mind. We're going to be focusing primarily on verses 9 through 11, but we'll also read and talk a little bit about verses 1 through 8 just to set the context. I've titled today's message, Consistent Love in a Changing Culture. Here's a question. Do you feel the pressure? I can. (laughs) I can feel it on every side. Culture is pressing in on the church, isn't it, church family? You know, we can't go a day anymore without having something attack our biblical mindset. The hate toward Christ and in turn toward us, Christ's bride, is growing I'd say it's even abounding we do not accept as good the things the world presents to us they want us to condone things that God has made abundantly clear are sinful and are destructive and because we do not condone these things we're labeled many different horrible names, aren't we? What do we do? In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian church, starting in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with every joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Did you know that Paul was actually in prison when he wrote this? The Apostle Paul was in prison as he was writing this letter, but you wouldn't know it by how joyful he is in the introduction to this letter, would you? Instead of starting this letter off all dark and gloomy that he's in prison... He starts off with joy. M- much joy in fact. I imagine Paul sitting in that dimly lit prison cell on that dirty smelly prison floor with rats scurrying around and and he can sound the he can hear the sound of other prisoners cursing and yelling and yammering in the background. But Paul sits there calm, collected with a smile on his face as he writes to this wonderful church in Philippi. Notice that in the first five verses, Paul greets them and talks about how he is so thankful for them and so joyful for how they've responded to the gospel. He says, from the first day until now, they have participated in the amazing work of sharing the gospel, the good news. Many people tended to give up on Paul as trials would pile on, but this church decided they would stay true, and they'd stay faithful by supporting him through all of this, even now as he was in prison. It was probably a nice change of pace for the Apostle Paul because he was so used to being abandoned and mistreated when things got tough. But the Philippian church, they refused to do that. They stayed true. And just like us, they were under quite a bit of pressure in that culture. Nobody around them liked the fact that they gave up their culture's ways to go and pursue the living and true God. I believe they were under an immense amount of pressure, just like we are in this day and age. Yet, they stayed faithful. And they supported Paul even as he was locked up for proclaiming the gospel. In spite of the pressure, this church stayed true. In verse 6, we see that he exclaims that he is truly confident that God will continue working in them and growing them to be more like Jesus. In fact, he seems to have no doubts. No doubt that God would continue the sanctifying work within their heart. In other words, he had no doubt that God would continue this work of making them more and more like Jesus. But how was he so confident of that? How was Paul able to say something so definite about this church? I mean, he was locked up in jail. He wasn't able to see any of them in person. How on earth was he able to be so confident that God would not give up on or leave or stop the process in this church in Philippi? Well, he explains in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, notice how he explains that the reason he's so confident is because they have assured him of their salvation by how they've acted ever since hearing the gospel. And Paul knows that God does not give up or abandon his children. And their actions and how they've reacted and continued to react to the gospel ever since they heard it has assured Paul that they were truly children of God and that they too were partakers of the same grace that Paul was saved by, and that Paul became a child of God through. He says that even in his imprisonment, they had defended and confirmed the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners, because he paid for their sin on the cross. And then he died, and he rose again, so that whosoever would place their faith in him will be saved forever and eternally. Only a church that truly has Jesus would stand so firmly on the gospel in the face of such pressure. And that's what Paul is saying. He is confident that God would continue this work in their hearts because he was was sure that they truly were a church that had Jesus. Does this church, Grace Calvary Church, truly have Jesus? I believe so. And that's why I believe that this church, by the grace of God, will not crack under the ever-increasing pressure on every side for Christians to reject the Word of God and condone sin. We will not turn our backs on our Savior. We will not turn our backs on our Father. We will not turn our backs on our God. So moving now to verses 9 through 11. These verses are very interesting to me. Often when I hear the book of Philippians taught on or overviewed, uh, this little section of verses 9 through 11 are completely overlooked. The focus is usually on verse 6 where Paul talks about his confidence that God will continue that good work in them that he started. I, I really haven't seen these three verses talked about very much, which is a shame because I truly believe that they speak wonders They speak wonders to what we're seeing in our culture today. They tell us where these churches that have embraced sin, where they they went wrong. It also tells us how we can avoid that same mistake. These are some amazing verses, and I think you'll agree with me once we get into it. But first, let's ask God to bless this time together. Lord, we thank you so much for this time we can gather together and, and hear from you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to the individual's hearts here today, and teach them exactly what you desire them to know. Thank you for all that you are, all that you do, in Christ's holy and precious name we pray, amen. As we come to the first half of verse 9, it says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Starting here, Paul has moved from proclaiming how thankful he is for all of the progress they've made and stating that he's sure continued progress will be made into now this specific area that he's praying progress will now be made in. And it's that their love should abound more and more. Paul is telling them and in turn telling us that our love should abound and it should abound more and more. And of course, there are other ways that we should continue to grow in as well, you know, but Paul's chosen this way to pray specifically. And I, I believe it's for a very important reason. The reason is that without love, we are useless. Despite the direction the world is going, we are to be known by what church family? By our love. And in these evil days, our love is to still even be abounding, and abounding more and more. If we do not have love, how are we going to stand out in this culture, in this world? In First Corinthians chapter 13, we are reminded, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing." Church family, without love, we are no better than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love, our witness for Christ is void. It's utterly useless. A Christian without love is a Christian that has ripped the heart of God from Christianity. Maybe that's why some Christians and churches without love are so powerless. Because a Christian or a church without God, or without love is a Christian or a church without God. Love centers all that we believe and care about and do. Love is the reason that Christ died on the cross. Love is the reason now that we're saved, we don't go and just live a life of sin. Love is the reason God did not smite sinful humanity the moment we rebelled against Him. Love is the center of all that we are and all that we do and all that we believe as Christians. First John 4.19 tells us we love because He first loved us. We're called to love God with all our hearts, souls, and minds. We're called to love our families and our spouses. We're called to love the fatherless, the widow, the widower, our neighbors, our church family. And we're called to love even, who else? Our enemies. Our entire purpose in this world as Christians is wrapped up in the all-consuming command of God to love. In 1 John 4.16 we read, We have come to know and have believed in the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. God is love. Out of everything Paul could have chosen to pray for for this church to grow in, he chose love. And it's no wonder, because love is the heart of Christianity. When Christians fail to love, they fail everything they were called to be as Christians, as Christ's followers. But what does this love look like? What What does Christian love look like? In 1 Corinthians 13, now continuing into verse 4 and the following verses, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question Is love something you fall into? Do you just fall in love, into biblical love? Well, do you fall into being patient? Do you fall into being kind and not jealous? Do you fall into being not easily provoked and instead being forgiving? No, right? Of course not. These things are things we actively have to work toward. Love is a choice. And we must make the intentional choice, church family, to love. To love one another. To love our families. To love our church. And yes, even to love our enemies. And Paul tells us, the church, Christ's bride, we must abound and grow in love. Amen? A great way we can practice choosing to love is is right at home. You know, sometimes for some reason the hardest people to choose to be loving to sometimes are those closest to us. We can go to work and and declare our love for the raging mad coworker who hates us for being Christian and then when it comes to going home and being loving to our spouse or our family, it can be difficult sometimes. I'm not sure why that is, but You know, I've been guilty of that in the past. I've been patiently and lovingly trying to share Jesus with a militant atheist on the internet, but then went from that to being impatient with my wife. It shouldn't be that way, should it, church family? Growing in our love should be starting within our very own homes, Another place we should practice growing in our love and choosing to love is at church. You know, the consumer mindset has really affected the way that church is done in America. Sometimes we act as if church is a production that is put on for our individual benefit, and so we we go and we get it and we leave, and that's just kind of the way it's done here in America at a lot of places. Sometimes people don't go at all because they can get what they want from home that being the message. But church is not that, right, church family? It's not that at all. Church is a place that we go to pour into others, a place where we go to grow and abound in our love, a place to outpour, not impour. I don't even know if that's a word. I'm just going to use it anyway. But of course, we're going to receive some inpouring as we're at church, as we should, but that is not the reason we go, right? Romans 15.1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength, and not just please ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Acts 20.35 says, In everything I showed you, by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. I know this church knows this, but church is not a sermon, right? It's so much more than that. Church is learning to be more like Jesus as we fellowship and help one another and lift those around us to the same cause. You know what's a shame? What's a shame is that in my past experience at previous churches I've been to, for some reason, often church is the place that Christians bring the least amount of love. Church is where they are most easily offended Where they are least patient. Where they are most critical. The place they bear the least amount of other people's burdens. The place they pour themselves out the least. The place they're the least outgoing. I'm thankful that at Grace Calvary Church, this doesn't seem to be the case. Because instead of being, of church being a place where we are least tolerant, it should be the place we're most tolerant, most patient the least critical, the most forgiving. The list goes on. Now, secondly, in the the second half of verse 9, Paul adds a further description about this love. Our love must be based in knowledge and discernment. Look again at at verse 9 where Paul writes, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. But what what kind of knowledge, what, what kind of discernment, what is he talking about? Well, discernment is perception with intellect. In other words, knowledge and discernment is knowing information and then wisdom and guidance in how to use that information in a godly way. A verse that communicates this idea quite well is Romans 12.2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What we need is God's knowledge in order to love the things that God loves. We need God's discernment so that we can know and love the things God would have us love. But what happens when love is disconnected from biblical, divine knowledge and discernment? What happens? Horrible things. Backwards. Gut-wrenching, sinful things. Satan has exploited the love of churches and Christians who did not have biblical love and knowledge and discernment He exploited their love and convinced them into embracing sin. Into condoning sin. Even applauding sin. Honestly, it makes me sick when I see churches that have turned away from the holy call of Christ on their lives and instead have become highways to hell. Rather than being a beacon of light, these churches use love as an excuse to reject God's Word and gloss over sin. Such churches have been turned into a trap door to eternal destruction. Make no mistake, Satan does and can use misguided and misinformed love to lead people away from God. Instead, just as Paul desired for the Philippians, by their love based in knowledge and discernment, they should be beacons of light. And this world is walking in darkness, church family. Trust me, they they need light. Remember this, that knowledge and discernment paired with love is absolutely essential They are key. It is inseparable. Because if you are a Christian without knowledge and discernment, your love will inevitably be used against you and against worse, against Christ. If you are a Christian unfamiliar with the Word of God where we find all knowledge and discernment, your love will inevitably be used against you and against Christ. If you're a Christian purposely disobeying the Word of God, your love will inevitably be used against you and against Christ. Because the Word of God is where we find all knowledge and discernment. But it's painful to be truly loving in these days, isn't it? Our love for God and for others, guided by true knowledge and discernment, is why our culture, our sinful world and culture, Defines us as some of the following terms hateful, homophobic, sexist, misogynistic, even evil. Because of our unwillingness to compromise on what the Bible says, we've been called those things. And that's what the world thinks that we are. But here's the thing. God calls us to be loving and to love no matter the consequences, right? Just like Jesus. What was Jesus' consequence for loving us? The cross. Jesus loved no matter the consequences, didn't he? No matter the pain. So what is the reason we're unwilling to compromise, brothers and sisters? It's love. It's love for God and it's love for the perishing. And it's the love of Christ that constrains us to proclaim the good news of the Gospel and call sin, sin. True love isn't quietly standing aside while we watch millions of people march into the highway of hell, is it? True love burns so brightly, we are persuaded to proclaim the death of Jesus for our sins and His burial and His glorious sin-defeating resurrection. Our love will not allow us to condone a person sprinting toward the fire. Yes, if we need to beg and plead like a street beggar for those who are lost to come to Christ, we will. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering toward the slaughter. Hold them back. Now finally, in verses verses 10 through 11, we discover one more principle. Love with knowledge and discernment produces righteous, God-honoring fruit. And isn't that what we want for our lives? Love with knowledge and discernment producing righteous, God-honoring fruit? Picking up at verses 10... And 11, we read, So that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In verse 9, we learned that our love needs to grow and abound, and that it needs to grow and abound with knowledge and discernment. Now we consider verses 10 through 11, what the result will be. Love with knowledge and discernment produces righteous, God honoring fruit. We here in the 21st century, with the moral collapse we're witnessing, we need this now more than ever. We need to be able to approve what Paul describes as excellent. What does that mean? What does approving what is excellent mean? It means being able to distinguish between good and evil, knowing with absolute certainty certainty, what is right and what is not right. It means knowing God's perfect and holy will. Notice in verse 10 how Paul also explains that this in turn will cause us not to live contradictory lives to the truth of God's word, living with life without hypocrisy. What naturally must go with approving what is excellent? Well, if you're approving what is excellent, that means you're what? Not approving of what is not excellent. If we abound in love and knowledge and discernment, we will know what things to approve and what things not to approve. The things that are displeasing to God. If I can speak to my own generation for a moment... We struggle with a lot of things. Evolution, sexual identity, drug use, such as fentanyl, which is killing more and more people every day. So many people want to be the author of what is good and evil, don't they? Sometimes their arguments may seem convincing, but we must ask ourselves is it, is it excellent? Is it godly? Is it righteous? Because that's what matters. Listen to the prophet Isaiah's warning in Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Steve Dallas, Kelby, and I, uh, Steve and Dallas are a couple that comes to our second service. We were talking about this subject the other day. What does it look like to love a homosexual or a transgender person? What 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 does that look like? What does knowledge and discernment look like in that situation? What does approving what is excellent look like in that situation? What about parents? Maybe some of you have have children or or grandchildren that struggle with these these sensitive issues. Maybe it's a, a grandchild or a daughter or a son. Beloved, we want to love the lost. We must love the lost and the confused to the cross of Christ. We must love the person even if we don't love the sin. We must treat them with Kindness and respect and care, looking out for their best interests by being honest about the penalty and the consequences of sin. We must point them to Christ and challenge them to believe in Him. Jesus Himself said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, how do we love a homosexual or a transgender person? We love them just like we love everyone else. The same exact way. 1 Corinthians 13 describes exactly how to do that. We read that already. And we love them to the cross of Christ. Then we watch how Jesus will change their lives. It's an amazing thing what Jesus does when someone comes to the cross of Christ, isn't it? We can all attest to the fact that Jesus absolutely transforms people's hearts and lives. John 3.16, it's such a simple yet profound verse. John writes in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. That's the simple truth. And that's offered to every single person who would simply receive it. There's not one person that God would not save. Paul acknowledged the amazing growth that had taken at this this church. In Philippi, and, and he continues to pray that their growth would happen more, that they'd continue to grow. I believe this church, Grace Calvary Church, is growing spiritually, and we need to continue. So I pray for myself and this and this wonderful church family that our love would abound in knowledge and discernment. In a fluid culture, in an ever-changing society whose definitions of love change too rapidly to keep up with the consistent, unchangeable love of Jesus Christ stands in stark contrast. Where the love of Christ is, no heart can hide. No eye can unsee what Christ's love shines forward. If we reflect the true, authentic love of Jesus unto the world, we expose the fake, counterfeit love that the world has attempted to fabricate. The world says, love is approving of sin. Christ's love says that love is not approving of sin. The world says love is ignoring the Word of God. Christ's love says love is exalting the Word of God. The world says love is letting people choose their own path. Christ's love says love is showing them where that path leads. We, as those who shine Christ's love, do not accept and condone and ignore sin. Divine love compels us to preach Christ and Him crucified. It compels us to preach the truth that every that the sin everyone desires to accept and condone and ignore is why Jesus had to be nailed to the cross. Is there anything less loving than to ignore the sin that caused Christ to be nailed to the cross? Is there anything less loving than to ignore the sin that convinces people to leap into hell? Though people think they're being loving by condoning these things, they're doing the opposite. True love is love that abounds in knowledge and discernment, which results in knowing what to approve and what not to for the sake of Christ and others. Church family, our love needs to abound and abound with knowledge and discernment so that we can be the beacons of hope and love and truth that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time we can come together. We worship you. We thank you, Lord, and we ask you to to teach us how to love the biblical way. Thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you do and for the amazing love that you shine forward as Christ entered this world and lived among us and was the example of true love as he went to the cross. Amen.